Find your place in your Bible with me, if you will, at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we begin a new series of messages today that leads us up to Easter. And we're going to be looking at one particular verse most of our time. But from verse 14 to verse 21 is where our focus will be for the next few minutes. And today we're talking about a life that is transformed, a life that is changed. That our past doesn't have to define our present or determine our future. That the past is forgiven and that God has made us new creations in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together as we get ready to prepare for this message. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beautiful singing that we've already enjoyed together. Thank you for the, the time of worship and music. Lord, we certainly have enjoyed those moments of singing praise to you, sometimes very quietly, other times uh, as loudly as we can, but just giving to you the glory of which you are deserving. There will be a day when we'll gather together in heaven and all of our voices will be blended as one and we will sing your praises for all eternity. But we thank you that we get to do that a little while every Sunday and beyond Sundays. We get to do that even here. Now, Lord, we turn our attention to the worship that comes through your word as we listen to what you have to say to us. And I pray today that you will speak through me as insignificant as I am and as weak as I may be. I pray, Lord, that I can be your vessel today and that you can speak through me to your people, to those that are watching us, to those that are in this room. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I don't think that there's a character in the New Testament that better typifies how Christ can change somebody's life, dramatically transform somebody's life than the Apostle Paul. If you don't know who I'm talking about when I talk about the Apostle Paul, let me just stop here for a moment and tell you that he is the vessel that God will choose and God will use to bring the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentile world. That there is a sense in which we sit here today as a result of this apostle, the apostle Paul, because of the way God used him, because of how God had prepared him. But he was not always that usable vessel. Paul was born in Tarsus. That would be in modern-day Turkey. And as a young man, his parents, both Jewish, they were both Roman citizens as well, and because of birth into this family, he also accrued that same Roman citizenship. When he was young, he moved to Jerusalem. I assume his parents went with him to Jerusalem. Uh, they were very fastidious in making sure that he was kept from all the Gentile ways. Uh, they, his parents, that is, were uh, Jewish nationalists. Uh, they were adherents to the law of God and to the law of Moses, and they moved to Jerusalem uh, from Tarsus, and when he comes of age, he is going to be trained, and he is trained by one of the most famous rabbis that we read about in the New Testament. His name was Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the leaders in the Jewish Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the supreme court of the Jewish people, if you will. And they make a lot of decisions about various things that come before them. But Gamaliel was one of the members of, of that Jewish body. Paul, as well, studying under this famous rabbi, 
not only learned the law, but he learned also the Pharisaic ways. Uh, we, we don't think very positively of the Pharisees today because we know what Jesus had to say about them and we know some of the background to them. But the reality is in the first century that the Pharisees were not looked upon as negatively as we look upon them. Uh, they were businessmen. They were leaders in the synagogues. They were men who not only uh, adhered to the law of God, but they had all of these oral traditions that were added on top of the law. And they viewed those oral traditions as binding as the law itself. And the result was these oral traditions that were handed down, the law that was written down, these oral traditions that were handed down had in some ways twisted and turned the law into something that it was never meant to be. It was a very legalistic approach, if you will, uh, to the observance of the law. And Paul ascends to that level of being even one of those, a Pharisee, uh, which would have been a very uh, religious body. Uh, th their pietism was very notable. Everybody knew who they were, and uh, they were respected because of their commitment to, uh, to the law. And yet, this man, Paul, being trained by this rabbi, learning the law as he did, he would have become an expert in the law, he would have learned uh, diatribe. He would have learned the question and answer method, which was a way of, of talking to people and dealing with people and teaching people the law. Paul was well-schooled. He would have had his doctorate, if you will. He would have been a PhD of his day. He was a brilliant man. And this was the man that God ultimately was going to use to bring the gospel of Jesus to the Gentile world. But at this moment, he was deeply Jewish. He was deeply committed to the law of God. He was deeply committed to these oral traditions. He was a Pharisee, and he was a man who was feared in many respects. Sometimes when you see Paul, you also see him by his other name, Saul. That's how he's known in the beginning. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. So when you see the two names, they're not two different people. There's like you have two names. He had two names. And in the days when he was mostly thinking about the Hebrew law, he was known as Saul. But as he became the apostle to the Gentiles, he became known as Paul. We don't know if Paul ever saw Jesus Christ. Paul would have been born eight to ten years approximately after Jesus was born. So he would have been coming along a decade or so after Jesus, born after Jesus. We do know this, Jesus came to Jerusalem on several occasions, a number of occasions. A lot of his ministry was down around the Galilee, we understand that, the Sea of Galilee. But he came to Jerusalem for the feast days, and he came to Jerusalem and cleared out the temple, and he came to Jerusalem on other occasions. So it may be that, that Paul saw Jesus at some point. It may be that he even heard some of the things that Jesus had to say. We can't prove that. We don't know that for certain. But if you notice in verse 16, there's maybe one indicator. There's some others, but there's one indicator. Paul says, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, we don't look at people according to worldly standards. We don't, we don't look at them according to class distinctions or economic standing or political power or educational degrees or racial differences. You know, that's how we used to look at people. That's how we used to view people. But then he goes on in verse 16. He says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, in other words, there was a time, he says, that we knew Christ in a reduced fashion. 
We viewed him purely from the flesh. We saw him only through those various distinctions. We didn't know him as we know him now. And he finishes out, he says, yet now we know him thus no longer. In other words, you know, we once knew Christ in a reduced way, but, but now we, we know him in a completely different way. Now, that may be an indicator that Paul had heard Christ. It may be an indicator that Paul uh, had seen Christ. Uh, he would have been younger than Jesus, but it may have been that he had some kind of interaction. You would think that if he was a Pharisee, uh, deeply committed to the law, he would have wanted to hear some of the things that Jesus had to say. This famous rabbi named Jesus who was doing these miraculous things. You would think that Paul would have wanted to see that. You would think that Paul would have wanted to know that, to maybe have experienced that and heard that. We can't prove that. The one thing we do know is that Paul did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you first meet him, you meet him in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. And in that chapter, the Apostle Paul is, at that point, he's just Saul, and he is attending the first martyrdom of the Christian church. Stephen was the first martyr of the Christian church. He preached this incredible sermon. People were convicted. They didn't like it, so they haul him outside the city. He goes before he's tried first. Paul may have been on that court that tried him, but they take him outside the city and they stone Stephen to death. And it says about Paul that they laid their garments at his feet. They came and they brought their outer coats and they laid them down for Paul to watch them. And then they took the rocks and they began throwing them at Stephen until Stephen's life ebbed away and Christ called him into his presence. And then in the very next chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, it says he was consenting to Stephen's death. It means he approved of it. It means he was in favor of it. It means he was a part of it. When you continue reading on through chapter 8, you continue reading about this man we call Paul. He was Saul at that moment. That's the name that was used, but it's Paul. We continue reading about that man, and we, we, we read that uh, he was violent and he was vicious. You know, some of the most, uh, the most deadly terrorists are religious terrorists because they believe what they're doing, they're doing in the name of God. They're doing because God has told them to do it. And we read about uh, Saul, Paul, who was a religious terrorist. He was going into the houses, literally going into people's houses, and anyone he found there that was a follower of Christ, anybody, men or women, it says, that he found to be followers of Christ, he took them out to Jerusalem, tried them, and had them locked up. And then when you meet him again, you meet him in Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, he is on his road, on the road to Damascus. Uh, he has in his hands the paperwork, the legal paperwork that's necessary to take under arrest anybody uh, that's a Christian, that's a follower of Jesus, called the way. They weren't called Christians at that moment. They were called people of the way. Anybody who was of the way in Damascus, he had the legal papers in his hand to take them under arrest, bring them back to Jerusalem to try them and to lock them up as well. As a matter of fact, I would tell you that when people used his name, they trembled. 
They trembled because of the power that he had. They trembled because of the hatred that he had for Christ and for Christianity. He was no believer in Jesus until, until that day on the Damascus Road, headed to Damascus to take under arrest any Christians that he could find. And on that day, he was stricken down by a bright light. And he asked the question, you know, who are you? Who is this? And Jesus said, I'm the one that you're persecuting. And Paul responds, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I love how he responded. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And in those moments, lying on that street, or laying on that street, you English teachers can correct that for me, laying on that street, the Apostle Paul became a believer in Jesus. He was blinded for three days. He was blinded until Ananias comes and God removes the blindness from his, from his eyes. He goes through a period of training and he ultimately becomes the great apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I said, who carries the gospel of Jesus to the Gentile world and in part is the reason why we as Gentiles sit here today because he carried the gospel of Jesus. I mean, there is nobody in the New Testament that has a more dramatic transformation from a religious uh, terrorist to a devoted follower of Jesus, a man who had blood, the blood of Christians on his hands, a man who treated Christians in an unjust manner, a man who when you spoke his name, people were in fear, they were trembling if they thought he was near them or close to them. That man was transformed from that religious terrorist to being the man who was the great apostle Paul. So when you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, what it says, I think the Apostle Paul could speak to this as well as anybody else. By the way, there are many people in the New Testament whose lives were transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, but none more dramatically than the Apostle Paul. And listen to what he says, verse 17, about this transformation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Isn't that an incredibly glorious verse of Scripture? Because most of us can think into our past. Some of you are thinking this moment into your past, and you're thinking, what did I do? I don't ever want to think about that again. I'm so ashamed of my life. I'm so ashamed of what had become of my life. I'm so ashamed of the direction in which I was headed in my life. I'm so ashamed of the emptiness of my life. And Jesus comes by the example of the Apostle Paul who writes this scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, look, there is a God in heaven who gives new life. He makes new creations. Think about this for a few moments with, with me, if you will. This new life, you'll notice, is for everyone. He says, therefore, if anyone. I love that phrase. If anyone. Uh, anyone means everyone. You get that? It doesn't mean that God says you and passes over you and says you and passes over you. It means God 
can transform anyone's life. There isn't anybody that's beyond his grace. There isn't anybody beyond his salvation. There isn't anybody that's beyond his mercy. It's available to anyone. There's a synonym for this word, anyone. It's whosoever. For God so loved the world. We sang it a few minutes ago. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, that's anyone, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's not whoever can, that's whoever will. Did you hear that? That's not whoever can, that's whoever will. That's anyone, anyone can have a brand new life. Your past doesn't have to define your present or determine your future because Jesus Christ comes to us and he gives to us a brand new life. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is found in the book of 1 Timothy about this all-inclusive salvation that God makes available to anyone. It's found in chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, here's the word, all men to be saved. As the word anyone is a synonym with whosoever, and whosoever is synonym with anyone, so anyone and whosoever is a synonym for the word all. And how many does God want saved? He said, I'd like to see all saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom. Do you know the next words? For all. For all to be testified in due time. Do you realize I don't know what's in your life, and I don't know what's in your past, and I don't know where you are at this moment, and I don't know the mess that you're in, and I don't know what you're trying to escape and what you're running from and what addiction has hold over you, but I can tell you this. I can tell you that there's a God in heaven who transforms people's lives. There's a God in heaven who makes people new. And anyone, whoever, all can have that transforming work take place in their lives so that their past doesn't determine their present or their past doesn't uh, determine their future or define their present. It's a matter of what Christ can do in changing our lives. That, my friends, is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the power that transformed the Apostle Paul is the same power today, 2,000 years, that is still transforming people's lives. I read an interesting story about a woman named Ruth Dillow. February the 27th, 1991, her son was in Desert Storm. His name was Clayton Carpenter. And she received word from the Pentagon that her son in the Persian Gulf had stepped on a landmine and he had died. This is what she said. I can't begin to describe my grief and shock. It was almost more than I could bear. For three days I wept. For three days I expressed anger and loss for three days, people tried to comfort me, but to no avail because the loss was so great. She said after the three of the most difficult days of her life, the phone rang. And the voice on the other end said, Mom, it's me. I'm alive. Ruth said, 
And I quote, I couldn't believe it at first, but then I recognized his voice and he really was alive. She went on to say, I laughed, I cried, I felt like turning cartwheels because my son, whom I had thought was dead, was really alive. And then she said, I'm sure none of you can even begin to understand how I felt. I think Peter might have understood how she felt. I think James and John and Andrew might have understood how she felt. I think Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, might have understood how she felt. I mean, after all, they had watched the Roman cross on which Jesus had been on which Jesus had been nailed. They saw the Roman cross on which Jesus had been nailed. They heard him say, "Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit." They saw him breathe the last breath of his life. They watched as a soldier rammed the spear into his side. They saw all of that unfolding. And for the next three days, they didn't know what life held for them. They were filled with sorrow and grief. They were uncertain about what was going to become of their own lives until that Easter Sunday morning. And on that Easter Sunday morning, I can tell you that those disciples in that room that evening after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when Jesus appeared to them, I can tell you those disciples understood the thrill of Ruth in finding out that her son was alive. That's the gospel, friends. The gospel that comes, the power of the gospel that raised up Jesus from the dead, that raised up Christ to life. That's the gospel, and that gospel is powerful, and that gospel comes to anyone, to whoever will, to all who are willing to come to Jesus, and that gospel has the power to transform people's lives. This new life is for everyone. I want you to know, secondly, that this new life is only in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ. Now, that's an important phrase. You don't want to forget it. Paul uses that exact phrase, in Christ. He uses it 84 times in his own writings. Paul uses it 84 times in his own writings. That number balloons when you add in him or in Jesus Christ, that number balloons. 84 times he uses that exact phrase, in Christ. He says, if anyone, whoever, all are in Christ, what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it means that we've traded our sinfulness for his righteousness. It means we've exchanged our death sentence for his eternal life. It means we've been justified by his grace and forgiven of our sins. It means that we stand in the presence of the righteous judge, but he won't see our sinfulness or our faults. It means that he'll see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Look down at verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and notice, for he made him, that's Jesus, God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what it means to be in Christ. As a matter of fact, there's 
an illustration that I can show you from the Old Testament. So turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 6, but don't lose your place in 2 Corinthians. You've read the story of Noah. You know probably the story of Noah. If you don't, it's found from chapter 6 to chapter 9 of the book of Genesis. It says that the days of Noah, the time of Noah was an extremely wicked time. Every intent, he says in verse 5 of chapter 6, of the thoughts of the heart were only evil continually. Evil everywhere. And there was one family that found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and that was Noah. God said, Noah, I'm going to destroy all of mankind. I'm going to destroy all of this wickedness, and only your family will be saved alive. What I want you to do is I want you to build this incredible ark, this thing that's enormous and massive. It has multiple floors. It's something that you can see a replica of in Covington, Kentucky, just outside of Cincinnati. You can see a replica of it. This enormous this enormous ship. Nobody's ever seen a boat like this. Nobody's ever seen a flood before. Nobody's ever seen rain like we're talking about. Nobody's ever seen any of these things. And yet here for 120 years is a man named Noah, who's a preacher of righteousness, calling people to repentance, but nobody's listening. They're only laughing at him. They're only making fun of him. They're only mocking him. And for 120 years, he's involved in the building of this great boat that God has told him to build. And you get to chapter 7, verse 1. This is what he says. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark. Think about that for a moment. He didn't say go into the ark. That would have meant God, that would have meant God wasn't there. But you know where God was? God was in the ark. And he was inviting him to come into the ark. Come out of this wicked world. Come into this ark. He invites him into the ark. And it says in verse 13 that he and his sons and their families entered the ark. Down in verse 16, it says, the Lord shut him in. That's eternal security. God shut the door to keep him eternally secure, to keep him secure inside the ark. And then the waters began to break loose. The rain began to fall. The water, the subterranean waters began to, to bubble up from beneath the ground. And the waters were rising and rising and rising and lifting that boat up off the ground. Those waters represent judgment. That boat represents the salvation of God. And Noah and his family were invited to come in. And they came in. And it was shut. The door was shut. They were secure. They were safe. On the inside, it says in verse 23, only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Say, so what does it mean to be in Christ? It means that he's invited you into the ark of safety. He is the ark of safety. You've come into Jesus. There's this union that you have now with Jesus Christ, and you're covered in his blood. And when God sees you, what God sees is not your past, and what God sees is not your failures. What God sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This new life is for everyone. This new life is only in Christ. May I say to you, friends, you've got to come into Christ if you're going to escape the judgment of God. And the only way to come into Christ is by believing on Jesus for yourself. You understand that I believe a lot of things. You do too, by the way. For instance, I believe that the Andy Griffith show was probably the best show in television history. 
I'm not so sure that we shouldn't make it mandatory for our kids to have to watch it. I, I believe, for instance, that one day our Marshall Thundering Herd are going to win another national championship. That would have been a good place for an amen, but we didn't get one. Not a lot of believers in this room. I, I believe that my mother's chocolate chip cookies might have been very much like the manna that fell from heaven for the Israelite people. Here's one I bet you, you agree with. I believe that Krispy Kreme donuts are a secondary evidence to the reality and the existence of God. Just put me on that belt and let me go through that conveyor. Right? The fact is we believe a lot of things that can't change our lives. They don't have any impact on our relationship with Jesus Christ. The only believing that changes our lives is believing in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's the only believing that brings us into Christ, that covers us in his righteousness, that the exchange takes place, our unrighteousness for his righteousness. That's the only believing that brings you into Christ. A new life is for everyone. This new life is only in Christ. But then I want you to notice thirdly that this new life changes everything. And this is what the message is about. Our past doesn't have to define our present or determine our future. This new life changes everything. Please notice it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, verse 17, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things, notice it again, have become what? New. Christians are not reformed. They're not re rehabilitated. They're not re-educated. They are recreated. And God makes us completely new. Um, I like to watch HGTV and DIY Network. Don't watch it all the time, but I like to watch some of the programs. I like the couple that's in Laurel, Mississippi. I like Chip and Joanna. I like a young couple that's down in Galveston, Texas, uh, out on the island, you know, rehabbing houses. They go into these old houses. You know, they're falling down. They're broken down. There's, there's years of wear and tear and you know, there's termites and there's all kinds of other things. And they go in, they buy these houses and they go into these houses and they strip out everything that they can out of that house and they remake that house. They, they rebuild that house and then they show you at the end these beautiful houses, been staged incredibly beautifully. If you could afford all those things that are in that house, your house would look good too, by the way. I mean, staged beautifully. And you look at those houses and we think, man, isn't that beautiful? That's not what God does. God doesn't take an old house and make it better. God recreates and makes us. The word new means new in kind. It means new freshness. It means brand new. It's new. He gives us a brand new life. Say, I want to escape my past best way to escape your past is to be in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the best way to escape your past is to be in Jesus Christ. When you're in Jesus Christ, it changes everything. It changes everything. It means we have a new family. 
We now belong to the family of God. It means we have a new way of looking at people. That's what we were reading about in verse 16. We don't evaluate people according to the flesh, according to all of these boxes where we're supposed to put people in life. We don't see people that way anymore. And we have a new motivation in verse 14. The love of Christ compels us. We have a new mission in life. We're now ambassadors of Jesus. Hey, by the way, why would we not want to tell people about Jesus Christ? We're telling them that they can have a new life. Now, this is positionally. I understand practically this gets worked out in what's called sanctification. But positionally, at the moment we put our faith in Jesus, positionally, we're made brand new. We're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, and that's how God sees us is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. A new life changes everything. This is why I'm not in favor of a lot of the rehab programs that are out there. Yeah, you rehab somebody, but you leave them tethered to their sin. Do you understand what Jesus Christ does? Romans chapter 6, you, before you came to Jesus, before you put your faith in Jesus, you are a slave to sin. And if you don't come to Jesus, you will continue to be a slave to sin. But when you come to Jesus and you put your faith in Jesus, he breaks the bondage of that slavery. You may choose to do the wrong thing, but then you're making the choice. You're no longer enslaved to it. Jesus Christ is the one who makes people brand new and then gives them the power to live out that life that he has for them to live. You see, your past, I don't know what it is. I don't know how bad it is. I don't know how ugly it is, but I want to tell you, it doesn't have to define your present or determine your future. Because if you'll come to Jesus Christ and put your faith in Jesus Christ, he will recreate you. He will make you brand new. By the way, this is the word that's used of creation in Genesis 1. When God created out of nothing, he makes us brand new. He makes us brand new. Can I say to those of you that are believers in Jesus, you're already a believer in Jesus, stop looking back to your past, to what you were, and start looking at who you are in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Stop and remember whose you are in Jesus Christ. Stop looking at your unrighteousness and start looking at Christ's righteousness. Don't live in your past. Live with the forgiveness and the recreation of God that he has made in the present, looking forward to what he has for his children in the future. Now, there's one last word i got to point out to you. Do you understand verse 17? Nobody could have written 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul did. Nobody could have written it better than Paul. Nobody's life is a greater example of a man transformed than Paul. He knew what he was talking about when he wrote verse 17. Therefore, which ties you back to what's at the end of verse 14. If one die for all, then all died. And at the end of verse 15, 
for him who died for them and rose again. Because Christ died and rose again, therefore, if anyone, that's whoever, that's all, is in Christ. You've come into Christ. You've heeded his invitation. You've exchanged your unrighteousness for his righteousness by believing on Jesus. You are a new creation. All of the old is passed away. The devil may bring it up. Your friends may bring it up, but God will never bring it up. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, but you missed a word. That's not fair to say. I haven't emphasized a word yet. Do you know which one? It's the conditional word in the, in the verse. Do you know which one is the conditional word? Therefore, what's the next word? If. If. That's the conditional word. In other words, he's saying to us that if you're not in Christ, you haven't been changed. If you are in Christ, then you have been changed. And so the question comes to us today, are we in Christ? Have we believed on Christ for salvation? Where was the moment in your life when you recognized that you were a sinner in need of the Savior and that Jesus was your only hope and you came and you put your entire eternal destiny in the hands of Jesus and you exchanged your unrighteousness for his righteousness. I don't mean by any work that you did, but by the work that Jesus did for you and you believed. You believed that in Jesus is eternal life. Where is it? If there is that moment, you can claim to be a new creation of God, but if you can't, go to that moment, then you're not yet that new creation. Your past, you're still tethered to it. It's like a cloud that goes with you everywhere you go. It hovers over your head everywhere you go because you haven't believed on Jesus. I heard about a communist agitator who was addressing a crowd of people in a city, a city square while he was speaking, he pointed out an old beggar who came staggering along the road. He was dressed in rags and in tattered clothes, and he was more than just a little bit drunk, staggering as he came along. And as that communist spoke, he said, communism will put a new suit on that man. Almost sounds like some of our government thinking. Communism will put a new suit on that man. And there was a Christian who was listening to him that day, and he quickly spoke up and said, yeah, but Christ can put a new man in that suit. You can be a new man, a new woman, if you'll believe on Jesus. 